This is day three of this February 2020 four day session. I'm going to continue reading from uh, this book by Ajahn Chah, book of his teachings, uh, <clears throat> entitled Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away Teachings on Impermanence and the End of Suffering. Translated by Paul Breiter. And uh, picking right up where we were yesterday, he says, if we speak the subtle dharma, most people will be frightened by it. They won't dare to enter it. Even saying don't do evil, most people can't follow this. So I've sought all kinds of means to get this across. And one thing I often say is, no matter if we are delighted or upset, happy or suffering, shedding tears or singing songs, never mind. Living in this world, we are living in a cage. We don't get beyond this condition of being in a cage. Even if you are rich, you're living in a cage. If you're poor, living in a cage. If you sing and dance, you're singing and dancing in a cage. If you watch a movie, you're watching it in a cage. <clears throat> What is this cage? It's the cage of birth, the cage of aging, the cage of illness, the cage of death. In this way, we are imprisoned in the world. This is mine, this belongs to me. We don't know what we really are or what we're doing. Actually, all we are doing is accumulating suffering for ourselves. It's not something far away that causes our suffering, but we don't look at ourselves. However much happiness and comfort we may have, having been born, we cannot avoid aging. We must fall ill and we must die. This is Dukkha itself here and now. <clears throat> the time we can be afflicted with pain or illness is always. It can happen at any moment. It's like we've stolen something. We could be arrested at any time because we've done that. That's our situation. We exist among harmful things, among danger and trouble, aging, illness and death reign over our lives. We can't go elsewhere and escape them. They can come catch us at any time. It's always a good opportunity for them. So we have to cede this to them and accept the situation. We have to plead guilty. If we do, the sentence won't be so heavy. If we don't, we suffer enormously. We have to plead guilty. We have to accept this is the nature of life. Short, <clears throat> uncertain. It's not going to end well. <laughs> There's only one way out. But he says if we do, if we do plead guilty, that is if we accept, the sentence won't be so heavy. Really the, the most painful thing is to be taken by surprise, not to have seen that this is the nature of life. And then all of a sudden where you have a diagnosis or somebody close to us dies or becomes very ill or becomes demented or has a stroke. There's so many things that go wrong with our bodies and our minds. To understand 
This is all provisional. We've got some time here. We have the opportunity to use it. There's no point in wringing our hands over the way things are. But even people who don't see this, who don't, who don't think on it, feel it. That's the anxiety that's inside of everyone. Quivers inside everyone, as Heidegger put it. Ajahn Chah says, if we plead guilty, they'll go easy on us. We won't be incarcerated too long. <laughs> it's a little optimistic. When the body is born, it doesn't belong to anyone. It's like our meditation hall. After it's built, spiders come to stay in it. Lizards come to stay in it. All sorts of insects and crawling things come to stay in it. Snakes may come to live in it. Anything may come to live in it. It's not our hall. It's everything's hall. I think that's a bit of been our experience here at Chapin Mill. This building didn't start out with insects and spiders and <clears throat> small beasties, but they've, they've taken up residence inside and outside. It says, these bodies are the same. They aren't ours. We come to stay in and depend on them. Illness, pain, and aging come to reside in them. And we are merely residing along with them. When these bodies reach the end of pain and illness and finally break up and die, that is not us dying. So don't hold on to any of this, but contemplate clearly, and your grasping will gradually be exhausted. <clears throat> That's a long process. But it does happen. We do find our grasping lightening over time. Keep stumbling over ourselves. We keep falling into wrong thinking, deluded thinking. We're surprised by things that shouldn't really be a surprise. But gradually it sort of sinks in. <clears throat> and when he does, as he puts it, we recognize suffering as suffering when it arises. When it ceases, we consider that to be happiness. We see it and designate it as such, but it isn't. It's just dukkha ceasing. Dukkha, that is suffering, arises and ceases, arises and ceases, and we pounce on and grab hold of it. Happiness appears and we are pleased. Unhappiness appears and we are distraught. It's really all the same, mere arising and ceasing. When there is arising, there's something, and when there is ceasing, it's gone. This is where we become confused. Thus it's taught that dukkha arises and ceases, and outside of that, there is nothing. This happiness that appears is the happiness that's the opposite of sorrow. It's up and down. Push a button and we're up. Push a button and we're down. We don't recognize clearly that there is only suffering because when it stops, we see happiness there. We seize on it and get stuck there. We don't really know what's going on, which is just arising and ceasing. 
the Buddha summed things up by saying there are only arising and ceasing and there's nothing outside of that. That is difficult to listen to. But one who truly has a feel for the Dharma doesn't need to depend on anything and dwells in ease. The truth is that in this world of ours, there is nothing that does anything to anybody. There's nothing to be anxious about. There's nothing worth crying over, nothing to laugh at. Nothing is inherently tragic or delightful, but such is what's ordinary for people. Our speech can be ordinary, relating to others according to the ordinary way of thinking, seeing things. That's okay, but if we are thinking in the ordinary way, that leads to tears. If we really know the Dharma and see it continuously, nothing is anything at all. There is only, There are only arising and passing away. There's no real happiness or suffering. The heart is at peace then when there is no happiness or suffering. No thrills and terrors. When there is happiness and suffering, there is becoming and birth, meaning ceaseless transformation. We are usually trying to stop suffering and give rise to happiness. That's what we want. But what we want is not real peace. It's happiness and suffering. The aim of the Buddha's teaching is to practice to create a type of karma that is beyond happiness and suffering and that will bring peace. But usually we can only think that having happiness will bring us peace. If we find some happiness, we think that's good enough. So much of our efforts are towards finding that contingent happiness. Such a big deal in our minds. It says, thus we humans wish for things in abundance. If we get a lot, that's good. Generally, that's how we think. Doing good is supposed to bring good results, and if we get that, we're happy. We think that's all we need to do, and we stop there. But can good experiences give us lasting satisfaction? It won't remain. We keep going back and forth, experiencing good and bad, trying day and night to seize on what we feel is good. The Buddhist teaching is that first we should give up evil, and then we practice what is good. Second, he said that we would should give up evil. He said that we should give up evil and give up the good as well, not having attachment to it, because that is also one kind of fuel. When there is something that is fuel, it will eventually burst into flame. Good is fuel, bad is fuel. And of course, attachment is fuel. <clears throat> we see it in Sashin, of course, when we have a good round of sitting and then uh, maybe not so good in the in a subsequent round, uh, can get caught up in that up and down. It all can take care of itself. We're, we're working above our pay grade when we're trying to control how things, uh, how conditions are in our sitting. The mind moves. The mind changes. We know it. We know this. Yet we keep getting fooled. We keep getting caught up. To develop patience. To be okay with just grinding it out when that's what's, what it's like.
we gradually build up the ability to meet with difficulty, to have things not so good. And then when things do go well, we don't get we don't get thrown. It's about as easy to get thrown by things going well as by things going bad. As long as you're caught up in the ups and downs. Of course, we all have our our limits. We may develop a capacity to uh, have equanimity in the face of setbacks. Um, but I think for <clears throat> most of us in this world, there are some things that we can't find that equanimity when we run into them. And we have to accept that as well, that there are limits to our understanding, to our forbearance. There are stories about great masters who have a beloved disciple die or a child die. And I can think of two different stories, pretty much the same. Someone comes to them and says, you've taught us that there's no reason for sorrow. And yet you're crying. Why is that? How can that be? If everything is delusion, what are you crying about? One case, the master said, of all delusions, there's no greater delusion than to lose a son. The difference, I think, with someone who's developed those qualities, worked a lot of things out, is that it doesn't stick around as long. It isn't resisted. There isn't the why me or how could this happen or this isn't fair. We don't throw a temper tantrum or go into a sulk. But we're normal, we're human, we have feelings. We're glad when things work out, we're disappointed when things don't. But if you get caught up in that, if you, if you buy into it, if too much of your attention and your energy is there, you're going to suffer. I'm going to skip ahead uh, into another section. This section is entitled Anatta, or Not-Self. <clears throat> this is the third of the three uh, characteristics of existence, impermanence, suffering, and Anatta. And the, this chapter is entitled Don't Be a Buddha. No matter what kind of dharma we learn, if we don't realize the ultimate truth in our hearts, we won't reach satisfaction. An apple is something you can see with your eyes. You can't know the flavor of the apple by looking at it. But you do see the apple. You can't see the flavor, but it's there. You can only know it when you pick up the apple and eat it. The dharma we teach is like the apple. Merely hearing it, people don't really know the flavor. When they practice, then it can be known. The flavor of the apple can't be known by the ears, and the truth of the Dharma 
can't be known by the ears. Excuse, excuse me, the flavor of the apple can't be known by the eyes. Probably not by the ears either. There is knowledge, true, but it doesn't reach the actuality. One has to put it into practice. Then wisdom arises and one recognizes the ultimate truth directly. One sees the Buddha there. So I compare it to an apple in this way. Even short of awakening, our understanding of the Dharma develops as we practice. You meet people sometimes who've been reading Zen texts for years, for decades. It's, uh, it can be kind of addictive. I did a bit of, of reading in, in, uh, before I took up practice. And it's exciting, it's fascinating, it's like daydreaming almost. But as we begin to sit, we learn and we find things changing. Things become more even. So our appreciation of the Dharma grows over time. In order to help his disciples realize the Dharma, the Buddha taught a single path but with different approaches and characteristics. He didn't use only one form of teaching or present the Dharma in the same way for everyone, but he taught for the single purpose of realizing ultimate truth and transcending suffering. All the meditations he taught were for this one purpose. <clears throat> this is because people don't look at themselves they don't really know what's going on in life. How do you stop this delusion? People believe this is me, this is mine. If you tell them about not self, that nothing, that nothing is me or mine, they immediately want to argue the point. Even the Buddha, after he attained awakening, felt weary at heart when he considered this. When he was first enlightened, he thought it would be too hard to explain the way to others. But then he realized that such an attitude was mistaken. If we don't teach such people, who will we teach? This is my question which I used to ask myself at those times I got fed up and didn't want to teach anymore. Who should we teach if we don't teach the deluded? There's really nowhere else to go. When we get fed up and run away from others, we are deluded. We ourselves are deluded. Of course, you can't teach people who don't want to hear. There is, there is a time when you just have to let people <clears throat> go down their road. Perhaps they'll be ready later. There was an English clergyman back, I don't know, in the 17 or 1800s who said there's no point in preaching to anyone unless you happen to catch them sick. And uh, Anthony DeMello, who I like to read from, talks about his unwillingness to talk to people who want to argue, who can't, who can't understand what he's saying. He said, there's no point in trying to teach a pig to sing. It annoys you and it irritates the pig.
There's another pig story. Guy's going down the road, and he sees a par- farmer holding a pig up to eat apples out of a tree. And then when the pig has had its full fill, he picks up another one and lifts it up. Guy watches for a while, and he says, he comes up to the guy and he says, you know, if you just knocked the apples on the ground, the pigs could eat them there. He'd be a lot more efficient. He'd, he'd save a lot of time. And the farmer says, well, what's time to a pig? <clears throat> student asks, how about if we aspire to be Pacheka Buddhas, the solitary realizers who who attain, this is in parentheses, the solitary realizers who attain enlightenment without a teacher and don't teach others? Ajahn Chah replies, such terms are merely metaphors for states of mind, but being something is a burden. Don't be anything. Don't be anything at all. Being a Buddha is a burden. Being a Pacheka is a burden. Just don't desire to be. I am Mr. Smith. I am a venerable monk. That way is suffering, believing that you really exist thus. Mr. Smith is merely a convention. Monk is merely a convention. If you believe you really exist, that brings suffering. If there is Mr. Smith, then when someone criticizes him, Mr. Smith gets angry. That's what happens if we hold these things to be real. Mr. Smith gets involved and is ready to fight. If there is no Mr. Smith, then there's no one there, no one to answer the telephone. Ring, ring, nobody picks it up. You don't become anything. No one is being anything and there is no suffering. It is such a relief to have our sense of separate self diminish a little bit over time. Think of all the things that I learned in AA, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Just getting a little taste of humility, realizing that our powerlessness over alcohol and over life, things go so much easier when there's not someone to defend. It's difficult when when we're told things we don't want to hear. It's difficult when we're praised. It's difficult when we fail. It's difficult when we attain. Ajahn Chah says, once a monk came to see me and he urgently confided, Long Poor, that's his <clears throat> name, familiar name, Long Poor, I have attained stream entry. This is the first level of enlightenment. Could say I've I got Kensho. All I could think to say was, well, that's a little better than being a dog, I guess. <laughs> and uh, in parentheses, the translator says, calling someone a dog is among the worst of insults in Thailand and not done lightly by anyone. And then Ajahn Chah says, he didn't like that, and he went away in a great huff. The stream enterer was angry. There's a story I can't resist telling. You may have heard this before. <clears throat> it's about uh, a Song Dynasty poet uh, who was friends with a Chan master, a Zen master named Fo Ying. The poet's name was Su Tong Po. And uh, he had come across the river. They lived on the other, opposite sides of a big river. 
uh, to visit the master. The master wasn't there, and so he was bored and waiting, and he scribbled some verses. I think they began with this, or maybe it ended with this. Unmoved by the eight worldly winds, serenely I sit on the purple gold terrace. And then he signed it. Sutung Po, the great Buddhist, who cannot be moved even by the combined forces of the mighty eight worldly winds. Well, the Chan Master got back and saw the note, and uh, he scribbled on it. This isn't worth a fart. And he sent it back the other side of the river. And when the poet got that response, he hopped in his boat and rowed over and confronted the master and said, we've been friends for so long. How could you, how could you say this to me? And the master said, Su Tung Po, the great poet, who cannot, the great practitioner who cannot be moved by the eight worldly winds, has been blown across the river by a puff of wind from the anus. <laughs> If we believe ourselves to be something or someone, then every time the phone rings, we pick it up and get involved. How can we free ourselves of this? We have to look at it clearly and develop wisdom so that, if, so that there is no Mr. Smith to pick up the telephone. If you are Mr. Smith and you answer the phone, you will get yourself involved in suffering. So don't be Mr. Smith. Just recognize that these names and titles are on the level of convention. If someone calls you good, don't be that. Don't think I am good. If someone says you're bad, don't think I'm bad. Don't try to be anything. Know what is taking place. But then don't attach to the knowledge either, thinking I am someone who is aware. It's just endless. It's just endless the things we can pat ourselves on the bat about, back about or say aw shit about. It's always the minute you have some sort of evaluation, you're taking your eye off the ball. You're not with what is, with your ideas, with your concepts. So we notice and let it go. It says, we see the physical form of things, but we don't see the grasping. The grasping is becoming and birth. We live continually becoming something. The place without becoming is empty. When we try to teach people to reach the place that is empty, they just say there's nothing there. Real practice is required for it to be known. We have been relying on becoming, on self-grasping, since the day of our birth. When someone talks about not-self, it is too strange. We can't change our perceptions so easily. So it's necessary to make the mind see this through practice, and then we can believe it. Oh, it's really true. When people are thinking, this is mine, this is mine, they feel happy. But when the thing that is mine is lost, they will cry over it. This is the path for suffering to come about. We can observe this. If there is no mine or me, then we can make use of things while we are living without attachment to them as being ours. If they are lost or broken, that is simply natural. We don't see them as ours or as anyone's, and we don't conceive of self or other. We 
was really impressed uh, when the Taliban took over for a while in uh, Afghanistan. There's one province that uh, <clears throat> had been Buddhist, and maybe there's still some Buddhists there, but obviously not in a very safe situation. And they destroyed some amazing uh, statues, a huge uh, statue of the Buddha, standing Buddha, carved into the cliff. And it was kind of inspiring to see how uh, some responded. Statue is just a created thing. As the Buddha said, all conditioned phenomenon are subject to decay. Everything passes away. To be able to see this, to recognize this, in the, in the face of such a, <clears throat> what seems like such a travesty, kind of unusual. <clears throat> Back to Ajahn Chah. He says, I think what it comes down to is that people are afraid of change and afraid of death. Having been born, they don't want to die. But is that logical? It's like pouring water into a glass but not wanting it to fill up. If you keep pouring the water, you can't expect it not to be full. But people are born and don't want to die. Think about it. If people are born but never die, will that bring happiness? If no one who comes into the world dies, things will be a lot worse. We'll probably all end up eating excrement. Where would we all stay? It's like pouring water into the glass without ceasing, yet still not wanting it to be full. We really ought to think things through. If we really don't want to die, we should realize the deathless as the Buddha taught. Do you know what the deathless means? Though you die, if you have the wisdom of realizing not self, it's as if you don't die. Not dying, not being born, that's where things can be finished. Being born and wishing for happiness and enjoyment without dying are not at all the correct way. But that's what people want so there is no end of suffering for them. True practitioners do not suffer. Ordinary practitioners still suffer because they haven't yet fulfilled the path of practice. Of course, that's our situation. They haven't realized the deathless, so they still suffer. They're still subject to death. Born of the womb, can we avoid death? Apart from realizing that there is no real self, there is no way to avoid death. I don't die. Conditioned phenomena undergo transformation following their nature. The Buddha was on his deathbed. His final words, one translation anywhere, way was, all compounded things, all conditioned phenomena decay. Work out your own salvation with diligence. When others look at such a person and try to figure him out, they will probably see someone who's crazy. But this isn't a mad person, this is someone who's diligent. Such a person really knows what is useful in so many different ways. When an awakened being looks at ordinary worldly people, she will see them as ignorant, like little children. When worldly people consider an awakened being, they will think she's lost it. She doesn't have any interest in the things they live for. 
to put it another way, an arahant, that is uh, an enlightened one, and an insane person are similar. When people look at an arahant, they think she's crazy. If you curse her, she doesn't care. Whatever you say to her, she doesn't react like a crazy person, but crazy and having awareness. A truly insane person may not get angry when she's cursed, but that's because she doesn't know what's going on. Someone observing the arhat and the mad person might see them as the same, but the lowest is mad, living in a condition of intense self-cherishing, while the very highest is the arhat, free of all ideas of and concerns about a self. If you only look at their external manifestations, they may seem similar, but their inner awareness, their sense of things, is very different. Think about this. When someone says something that ought to make you angry and you just let it go, people might believe you're crazy. So when you teach others about these things, they don't understand very easily. It has to be internalized and experienced directly for them to really understand. <clears throat> I think all of us understand a little. But even, even after years of practice, even people who <clears throat> are realized and quite developed still, uh, it's a long time before these things are, are let go of. Ajahn Chah here, this short little section, the little chapter called My Tooth, My Pillow, My Coconut, says, we hear the words of the Dharma such as nothing is us or ours, and we may think we understand pretty well. When I began practicing, I meditated on the parts of the body and felt I had some insight into anatta and was becoming detached from things. Then one day I lost a tooth. Oh, my tooth fell out. It seems I'm getting old. All of a sudden I was melancholy and disheartened. Later on I decided to go on tudong, which is, I guess, ascetic wandering. It's supposed to be a practice of utmost simplicity. Usually you only take your alms bowl and robes and a few essential items such as a water strainer and needle and thread. I thought I didn't have much attachment to possessions and could be content with little, but when I was putting things together to go, I couldn't bear to leave anything behind. I packed up a huge bag and it started to look like it would be more than I could carry. Then I thought about my pillow and I decided I had to have that too. Everything seemed to be mine and everything seemed so necessary even the coconut husk I used to polish the floor. A little bit of time, I'm going to skip ahead uh, to a section meditation instructions, points in meditation. And uh, this is a chapter called Don't Get Drunk on Tranquility. When I was younger, I looked for peace in the wrong way. I'd sit to practice samadhi, that is absorption, concentration, and my mind wouldn't settle down. It ran around wildly no matter how I tried to bring it back, it wouldn't return. If it did come back, it wouldn't stay. What to do? 
Should I stop breathing? I used to try that. I'd hold my breath to try and force the mind to stop moving, but it would still go. I'd hold the breath longer, but the only thing that could come of holding the breath longer and longer was that I would eventually die. It was similar when I felt my meditation was disturbed by sounds. I filled my ears with wax. I really stuffed them tight so I couldn't hear anything. It seemed like a good thing. No more outside sounds to bother me. But I started thinking about it. If not hearing or seeing anything is the path of the awakened, then the deaf should all be enlightened. The blind should all be enlightened. The completely deaf should be arhats. So I contemplated this until I got some understanding. I realized that just trying to block things out didn't really protect me, so I stopped doing that. <clears throat> I realized it was only me and my attachments causing the problems. So now I have a lot of regret. When I think about the way I practiced when I was new to meditation, how deluded I was, I really feel bad. I wanted to practice to be free of suffering, but I was only bringing suffering upon myself, and the result was that there was never any peace for me. Well, I hope he doesn't feel too bad. But it is true, when we look back on the things we did when we were younger, when we didn't understand anything, um, we had bad habits that we hadn't put down, and there's 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 some regret, but uh, it's well that that was our path. That's how we had to go. It's the past. And in some cases, we learn something from that. It's kind of wonderful that Ajahn Chah did such <laughs> stupid things. I'm sure it made him more compassionate and understanding of all the stupid students who came to him. <laughs> he says, when the mind becomes tranquil, we are delighted. If we have a few days of peace from it, we feel it's really enjoyable. Then one day, all of a sudden, it's like sitting on a nest of biting ants. We can't sit, we can't do anything. The mind is so wild and agitated. So we ponder and try to figure out why it isn't like before. It was so peaceful for those few days, and we can't help but long for that experience to return. Right here, we are deluded. Conditions of mind change. They are not fixed, certain, or stable. That is their nature. That is always going to be the way they are. Whatever occurs is already something old. It is not anything different or unique, but it is ruled by these same characteristics. We have to keep looking at the mind's reactions, the way it likes some things and dislike, uh, dislikes others. When we have liking, we feel pleased, and this sense of being pleased only comes about because of delusion. It's not because we are in the right. If you are tranquil, don't get drunk on it. If you are distracted, don't get drunk. The Buddha taught not to be intoxicated. This applies to all experience without exception. It's not just drinking. If we are always wanting more and more, then we are always in a condition of disturbance. The Buddha, the Buddha thus said that there is no wisdom in mere samatha, or tranquility meditation. In this practice, this samatha practice, first we may be tranquil, tranquil because we are separated from external sense objects. Not hearing sounds, not experiencing the objects of the other senses, we can become peaceful. That's good in its own way. 
It's because we've escaped from things for a while. It's like certain illnesses, such as cancer. It may not be noticeable for some time. There may be no symptoms, such as pain or swelling, so the person feels okay as long as the disease hasn't manifested. That's being in samatha and not noticing anything, feeling one has no defilement. But when we leave that tranquil environment and start encountering sights and sounds, we may be disturbed by those things. So then what can you do? Where can you stay in this world? Where can you go that you won't see, hear, smell, taste, or have physical contact with anything? The Buddha wanted our eyes to see things, our ears to hear sounds, our noses to know smells, our tongues to experience tastes, our bodies to feel hard and soft, cold and hot. He wanted to have us to have this full range of experience, not to live in total isolation. He wanted us to experience these things and realize, aha, this is the way things are. This is how we can come to wisdom. Even if we aren't doing sitting and walking meditation all the time, the mind can still be aware and on track, practicing energetically without there being any loss or deterioration. One who is skillful practices dharma in this way. It's a lot in Zen about becoming attached to silence and stillness. When uh, the great Zen master Hakuin came to his, his teacher, the one who threw him off the porch into the mud, called him a whole dwelling demon. He was attached to his experience of emptiness. And, and for, for even for us, just having uh, an experience of our sense of self dropping away or getting into a, a really deep space, because we're so struck by it and so happy about it, it can become an obstacle to our practice. That can become our goal. It's like, okay, how do I get this back again? And unfortunately, it takes a while to realize this state, the state of tranquility or of no self or of whatever, this did not arise because I was trying to create it. It arises because we're focused on our practice. We're letting go of all our concerns and our judgments and evaluations. So it's, uh, it's difficult because we've, we like so much when we feel we're making progress in practice. It's so easy and so uh, natural to us with our ways of grasping and pushing away what we don't like to get excited about it. But sometimes it takes a while. Eventually, when we've gone through this a few times, we begin to catch on. But it, it's, it's, you know, can talk about it all we want, but we have to experience it. We have to go through it. Don't think there's any other way. Some people go through it more quickly than others. Some of us have very thick heads. He says, have you seen the old meditation masters? They're indifferent to things. 
We can't really understand their equanimity. It's because their minds are cool and they have knowledge. So the root meaning of nirvana is cool, not heated up. Whenever suffering tries to approach, it doesn't shake them. When happiness comes, it doesn't shake them. It doesn't mean that they don't get happy. It means the happiness doesn't shake them. Don't bother me, little child. That's how they view these things. When unhappiness comes, don't bother me, little child. They are adults. The defilements can only sit around helplessly. We look at them and wonder how they can be like that. Our own minds heat up over such things. So it's taught that we should find an accomplished spiritual teacher and take his or her example as a foundation, contemplating it over a long period of time. Okay, our time is up. Stop now and recite the four vows. Thank <clears throat> you.